Well, I want to say uh, welcome in to those of you who are joining us now live on the web. It's good to have you be a part of worship today, or if you're coming back and maybe later in the week you're, you're dialing us in, uh, catching the archive version of this, it's good to have you be a part of, of what God's doing here. If you haven't been with us for a while, or maybe today's your first time here, I'll tell you, we are uh, midway through a series entitled How to Find Lasting Happiness. We've been examining the uh, little letter in the middle of the New Testament, Philippians, which is truly the happiest book in the Bible. I mean, literally, it's just four little chapters and it's chock full of Paul talking constantly about joy, happy, happiness, all of these related words where this guy who's in prison, been in prison for four years, and his, you know, from an earthly standpoint, his biggest hope for appeal is he's going to get to stand before Nero. Wouldn't you want to trade places with that guy? That that's, that's your one remaining appeal. As, as a Christian, you're going to get to share your story with Nero. That's, that's where Paul stands, but he is just so full of joy and confidence even after four years. And so that's what we're diving into today. Now, I, I really do have this sense in just interacting with people as we're talking about happiness that for most people, there is this general sense of if you really are happy in life, and that's been an, an ongoing thing for you, that you're really lucky. That you are, you know, just on the receiving end of a lot of good fortune, that, that things have just played out for you in such a way that circumstances allow you and enable you to be happy. Would you agree with that? That that really is kind of how most people tend to think that, like, if you get to be happy most of the time, well, goody for you, life must have just gone your way. And what we're learning in this series is how far from the truth that is, Paul's life being a grand example. I mean, this guy, when you just start to stack up all the things that have happened to him, especially in the previous few years and his current circumstance, and he is like, I am so happy. I just, I've got to tell it to you again and again. My joy is overflowing. And there's a part of you that's looking at him going, Really? Can you, can you be in circumstances that bad and be that full of joy? And the answer is yes, you absolutely can. And what we're discovering in this series is happiness is so much more tied to our habits and our mindset and really has very little to do with just circumstances of the things that we cannot control. And so what we're going to look at today, we're going to discover four more of those habits and traits, things that we, you and I are going to decide whether or not we, we hold on to and build into our lives, that it's not going to be a straightforward teaching from Paul about, okay, these are four things to do to be happy, but when you look at it in context of the whole letter, you realize we get another glimpse today, particularly from two people that Paul is working with, of just four key habits and traits that if you build these in your life, you are going to be at such a healthier place. God is going to be using you significantly, and you're going to be such a better, healthier, happier person as a result. So we're going to look together in Philippians 2, beginning in verse 19, where Paul says, I hope in the Lord to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself, because as a son with his father, he has served me in the work of the gospel. And I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I'm confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. Boy, you know he's confident in the Lord, don't you? Because there is no attorney who's arguing his case, and his appeal that remains is, you know, one day I may, might get to stand before Nero with the hope of, of being let off. So that's, that's definitely a confidence only in Jesus. And he goes on to say, you know, he said, I'm, I'm hoping to send Timothy soon when I find out what's going to happen with me, but I think it necessary to send back Epaphroditus to you, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs, for he belongs to all of you and is distressed because you heard that he was ill. And indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I'm all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety. So then welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and honor people like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help that you yourselves could not give. Now, if you're like me, when you're reading through the whole of, of Philippians and you get to a little piece like this, it would be easy to kind of go, well, that's sort of like the, the personal piece in there that there's no teaching about, okay, now these are three things that you need to build into your life to be a good follower of Jesus. It's not that kind of piece in the letter at all. It's, it's the sort of personal exchange of sort of the nuts and bolts of part of what he, Paul needs to say specifically to those people. 
He's saying, hey, I realize I need to get Timothy, who is my right-hand man, to you soon, and I'm going to send him soon. And Epaphroditus, who is from your town and who made this long journey, you sent him to bring the financial gift and the personal assistance to me as I'm chained up here next to a, a Roman guard day and night. And you sent him to help me. And, and you know, he's saying personal stuff about that whole exchange. And it would be easy to look at a passage like this and go, why did God even save that in the Bible? I mean, is there something big we're supposed to get out of this little exchange about, hey, I'm going to send you Timothy in the future, but right now I'm sending Epaphroditus back to you. Couldn't we just skip past that? If we did, we'd miss some really important stuff because in these little glimpses that we get of these two men's lives, we find out some really important stuff for us to apply. And first of all, what we see is Paul just giving a ringing endorsement for these two guys. He says, first about Timothy, I don't have anybody else like him. Haven't ever had anybody else like Timothy. He's a young man in the faith, but an extraordinary example of faith. And we're going to see some of why Paul gives him such an endorsement of, of Epaphroditus. He says, I want you to welcome him back home and you should honor men like him. And we're going to see in a minute why he would say that about him. But one other thing before we dive into the four truths that I want to share with you today is just notice how Paul says that sending these guys who have been like his, his arms and his legs while he's chained up to a Roman soldier, that he says, here's what it's going to mean for me to be able to do this. He said, I'm sending these men so that I may be cheered and so that you may be glad and so I'll have less anxiety. The Living Bible says it will make me happy and will lighten my cares. Do you see the irony of those statements? I mean, who is the person in greatest need in this situation? The Philippian church, which is just kind of rocking along and growing and just doing what the church ought to be doing. Paul, who is in prison in Rome, waiting to appear before Nero, and who desperately needs these people with him. And he says, I have, I've just got to get these guys to you. And it's going to give me such joy. It's going to cheer me. It's going to give me so much relief. My anxiety level is going to go down. Why? Because I'm so burdened for you. I want you guys to be growing and at a healthy place spiritually. I, I just want to know that you're doing well. And so it's just going to, it's going to certainly help you. You're going to feel better when they get there. But I am too. Isn't that just a cool thing? Don't you just hear such a shepherd's heart in Paul that he's saying, I can't be there. I didn't get to stay with you for long. We were just getting you started in the faith. And then I had to leave. And I'm just dying to get somebody back there that can see about your welfare. Paul wants them to be happy and healthy and right with the Lord. And I, my heart really identifies with that, that part of the passage. Because I, I just think, you know, as we're in this study, I'm thinking, as your pastor, I really want the same things for you. For all of us. I, I want us to be at a healthy place with the Lord. I, I want us not to just be sort of, to sort of cruise control, autopilot when it comes to our faith. But really be at a place that we're moving forward and we're experiencing the joy of really walking in what God has for us. And Paul said, I'm sending these guys back to help you move forward in that. And so what we're going to see that he says about these men who become for us lives really worthy of imitating, four different things that we glean from little details he gives us about Timothy and Epaphroditus that I want you to see. And we're just going to put them under the heading of to be happy, you need to. And we're going to just give four more Habits that you build in your life. And the first one is this. To be happy, you need to shift the focus away from yourself. This is a key point. If you go through your life and you stay focused on you and what you need and what you want and your anxieties, your fears and your struggles and just your, 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 I promise you this, you will be miserable. You won't be happy much of the time. A key piece to landing at a healthy and happy place is you have got to learn to shift the focus off of yourself and on to other people. And Paul said that's part of what was special about Timothy. He said, I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. For everybody looks out for his own interest. Would you agree that that last statement is just as true today as it was 1950 years ago when Paul wrote this? Everybody looks out for his own interest. I mean, how many people do you have in your life that they are just dedicated. They have committed themselves to looking out for you and your welfare. I bet you could name them all, count them all on the fingers of one hand and have some fingers left over, couldn't you? People just aren't looking out for other people in a big way. And he said, that's just how people live. But Timothy is such an exception to this. He is so burdened for you and he really is constantly trying to look out for you and make sure you've got what you need. 
It's a picture of unselfishness. And I'll guarantee you that you'll find, if you watch, that some of the happiest people in life are the most unselfish people. Have you ever been in conversations with people who, uh, in the moment, they look like they are focused on you, but when you really look at them carefully, you realize they aren't paying a lick of attention to you. You ever have conversations with people where it's a one-on-one dialogue, and you think for a moment that you have got their undivided attention, but the longer you talk, the more you realize they aren't paying attention to what you're saying. They're either thinking about what they're going to say next, or you realize their gaze is running past you, and they're looking at who else is in the room, and they're figuring out who they want to go talk to next. And it's like they don't know how to take a real interest in you and what you're doing. Paul said of Timothy, he genuinely cares for you. Others only care about themselves. So here's the first key. Focus. You've got to change your focus from always being about me and how I look and what I'm going through and what others think about me and what I want to consciously learning the discipline of focusing on others, talking to others about their lives. It's striking how differently you feel about people who do this. What a turnoff it is to be around people who, who want you to be impressed with themselves. And so what do they do? They talk about themselves. They try and bring every conversation back around to them and what they're thinking and their exploits and what they've done. And how differently you interact with someone who genuinely is interested in you. That they're asking you, not just the pleasantries of, hey, how are you doing? But that they take the time to be still, to look you in the eye, to call you by name, and to ask you questions that are genuinely geared around them trying to, to feel your pulse, to try and find out what's going on in your life. And it really is a, it's a learned behavior to do that. To, to just learn some key questions that go beyond, hey, how are you doing? Because if you ask that question, how honest of an answer do you get most of the time? Not very. So think about how can you interact with somebody at a level that gets a little bit beyond the surface of that. You know, I'll just ask people things like, hey, tell me what's going on in your world right now. What's giving you great joy right now? Where where are you struggling? When I get one-on-one with people and I'm just wanting to get below the surface, I'll ask them things like, hey, tell me your greatest joy in the last week. What's the biggest joy in your life right now? What's your biggest challenge? That's all about them. And it's amazing how much you'll learn when you ask the right kinds of questions. Timothy took a real interest in others. It's a challenge for us to just learn the discipline of doing that. Now, I'll say this to the singles in the room, to the singles who are listening, and I, I, am, I am one of them. I are one. You'd be better off staying single and staying home on Friday night than dating somebody who is like what Paul has just described that most of the world is. They're, they're self-absorbed. He says they're all wrapped up in their own affairs. Ladies, you find a man who's all wrapped up in his own career, in his own stuff, you'd be much better off living alone than getting connected to a man like that because a man like that is no prize. He will never meet your needs. He will never love you and give you what you need and what you deserve. And most people tend to be like this. It's really kind of interesting to me to read this week about a study that was done in a fairly scientific way where you know how books are all being digitized now anyway. And so uh, somebody did the research. They, they uh, looked at more than, through computer technology, more than a million books, comparing books that were written essentially a couple of hundred years ago in English to books that have been written in very recent years. And one of the things that they did was just an analysis of the frequency of the words that were used to see what are the words that were being used 200 years ago that aren't being used a whole lot in what's written today and what words are we just using to death and what we're writing today. It's very interesting to see how that has changed. Six words that are being worked to death today that were not there so much 200 years ago, and you could pick half of these. They were I, me, my, choice, unique, and special. Those are the six words that are getting used to death. I, me, my, my choice, I'm unique, I'm special. Isn't it kind of pathetic that those are the ones that just have skyrocketed 
in modern literature, modern writing today, all about me, what's special and unique about me, and two of the words that made the list that were so frequently used in the writings of 200 years ago that have all but disappeared from writing today. And they were the words responsibility and prayer. Now think about the contrast between the I, me, my, unique, special, blah, 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 as opposed to responsibility, which is about what I owe to you. Me being responsible to others and the direction that most prayer is focused, praying for others. Do you see what's happening in our culture? That it's been this transition from you know, a thought about others and how we interact with others to me, 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 me. The culture is driving us this way. It's going to take a conscious effort to say, I am going to take an interest in others. I'm going to ask the questions. I'm going to learn to redirect the focus to stop just looking at me and talking about me. First of all, turn your focus toward others. The second thing is to become someone that people can trust. Now, this isn't complicated to understand why this is fundamental to having a, a healthy and happy life because we've said before, obviously, you're not going to have a happy life if the key relationships in your life all are just stinkers, if they're all at a rotten place. Well, we know this about relationships. Every meaningful relationship that you have in life, the foundation is trust. You know this. I mean, it's, it's why, like in a marriage, the deadliest thing that can happen is for there to be unfaithfulness and then deception about that. Why? Because it completely blows up the foundation of trust that you share. In any relationship where there's deception, any, any form of lying to one another, it just very rapidly begins to erode the relationship because for everything else that you can stack onto it, that, you know, well, we just naturally relate to each other well and we share common interests and it's easy for us to communicate and we, we just we play together well. Whatever it is, all that stuff that, that you would build this big, beautiful house of a relationship on top of, it's always built on top of a foundation that is trust. I know I can trust this person. And when trust gets fouled up, Everything else just starts to cave in. And there's no joy in that. So being someone that other people can trust is vital. Paul said of Timothy, Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. Paul is talking about someone that he completely trusts. He's saying this guy is the real deal. I have been to the, to the wall and back with him. And I have seen that I can trust him because he's proven himself. I don't worry about where I stand. I don't worry about you know, what Timothy's going to do because I know that he's for real. Uh, a commentator today has said that the terminology that's used here for him is a synonym of the word creditable. That he is, you know, he's one that has proven that he is worthy of credit. It's uh, comparable to something that we can easily relate to. Anybody tried to take out a line of credit lately? Anybody tried to take out a loan lately? I actually have. I, a couple of, in the last couple of months, I refinanced my house. Holy mackerel. That is so much more of a pain than what it used to be. I've got really good credit. And in spite of that, one day in the process, I'm not exaggerating, literally in one day of what was a fairly lengthy process, there was a day that I submitted more than 200 pages of documentation of my personal financial background and tax records. And on top of that, in the same day, I had to fill out more than 40 pages of documents, every page of which was designed to ask and answer one fundamental set of questions, and that is, can we trust you? Are you worthy of our trust that we could loan you this much money and trust that you will repay it. And so we want all of this stuff to document that you are creditable, that you are worthy of being trusted. And of course, as soon as you begin the process, like the first thing that they do is they pull up all three credit reports on you, Equifax and all those others, to say, hey, somebody's been keeping score on you every day of your adult life, tracking what you did financially, and this is how they scored your life. I got those scores all back, and I thought, well, great. I'll have a loan tomorrow. <laughs> wow. They wanted a lot more than a number. They wanted to know all the details to see if I'm worthy of trust. And you may say, well, what does that have to do with anything? Here's what it has to do with it. 
in the same way that there are agencies out there tracking all of your financial moves to see if you're worthy of trust, the people who live around you every day of your life are doing a credit check on you and it's not about your money. They're doing a credit check on you to see if you can be trusted in life. If you can be trusted as a friend, if you can be trusted as a spouse, if you can be trusted to hold a confidence, if you can be trusted to keep your word, are you someone that others can trust? Now, here's the big catch. If we're really honest, and I, I, I really, I don't say this with any condemnation, it's just, it's a heartbreaking acknowledgement. Even within the church, I think most of us would have to admit that if you really knew us, if you followed us day and night and you heard everything that, that was said, that most of us would have to admit that we are not people worthy of trust. That we don't consistently speak the truth. I mean, I shared with you a few months ago that a, a study has shown that the average American woman tells three lies a day, 365 days a year. It averages out to three lies every day of her adult life. And the average man tells six lies a day every day of his adult life. Unfortunately, the church is not real good at shedding that. I mean, I just say that based on interacting with people who, when you really get to the heart of the matter, you find out when it's convenient, more convenient to do so. We just lie. We, we aren't trustworthy people much of the time. And if... I, like I said, I don't say that to condemn us. I say that just to make the point. Nobody wants to stay where they are if they're at a place where they can't fully be trusted and they, they lie when it's more convenient to do so. So the question then really becomes, it's not enough to say, well, we need to be people that can be trusted. Well, guess what? A bunch of us are not. A bunch of us lie when it's more convenient to do so. A bunch of us have good intentions and then we don't live up to what we promised that we would do. So now the real working question is, what do you do then? Because you're not going to have lasting, strong relationships if deception and falsehood is a part of your makeup. How do you begin to set this in order? Well, two just very simple, practical things that you've got to do to rebuild this, to become somebody that people can trust. And the first one is you've got to learn to live with integrity. And that may sound like, oh, it's just a real vague, general idea. Let me home in on what we're saying here when we say learn to live with integrity. When you hear the word integrity, think of, of the root that, that also creates the word integrated. Integrity, integrated. Integrating something means that you take the many different parts and you bring them together as one. In the times of like Plato, um, you know, in the ancient Greek world, on the stages, uh, actors often, there would be very few actors in a drama because the actors would wear multiple masks. You'd have one man who would play you know, many different roles in a drama. And the Greek word for that is the word for, from which we get the word hypocrite today. That was the term that meant an actor on a stage who wore many masks to play many roles. Well, it's not hard to make the connection to our current usage of the word hypocrite, is it? When we talk about a hypocrite, we're talking about someone who... in all these different situations of life, they've got different masks that they pop on. And what's the, in, in the eyes of the world, who is their favorite group to look at and call hypocrites? We are! Folks who go to church. Because, you know, they're saying of us, oh, we, we see how you operate. You have your Sunday morning mask. It's my Freedom Church mask. Oh, I'm doing great. Bless God. Praise the Lord. Loving Jesus. Loving you. It's my church mask. And the world says, you're a bunch of hypocrites because we see you on Monday morning when you show up for work. Yeah, you're using the Lord's name, but it's not to say, bless the Lord, praise Jesus. It's, you know, using his name like his last name was started with a D. You know, it's that kind of thing. You know, you've got a different mask. You've got a different attitude. How about Friday night? How about Saturday night when you're at the club, when you're at the bar? And, you know, they're like, we see a different mask then. You get the point. When the world sees someone that behaves very differently in different environments or, or behaves very differently, they're a different character with different groups of people, the world says to that, hypocrite, because they're going, you're like an actor on a stage with all these different masks. Well, 
If you're going to be someone that people can trust, a fundamental piece in it is this. All those different parts, all those different versions of you have to be integrated into one so that you are one real person. Did you ever just feel a little bit lost in all of the different environments that you go into that you kind of feel like, well, you know, with, with my family of origin and my parents, I kind of have to be one person. And with my church family, I'm a different person. And with my kids and spouse at home, I'm another person. But at work, well, I've definitely got to be a different person. But then when I'm with certain friends, I can be somebody else. Do you not just feel exhausted by that? Wearing all these masks? To be somebody that people can trust, we've got to lay down the masks and be real. And that's kind of scary for some of us. I'll hear people voice from time to time. You know, I feel like I don't even know who I am anymore. Because I'm all these different things. It's like I wear all these different masks for all these roles. I don't even know who I am anymore. Part of being someone that people can trust is not about perfection, but it is about consistency. I am who I am consistently wherever I am. If I'm out to eat, if I'm with friends, if I'm at work, if I'm at church, I am the same person. And then the final piece we'll say about this is it's the obvious one, and that is, you know, if you're going to be someone that people can trust, you've got to be someone who keeps your promises and who speaks truth. Proverbs 28.20 says, Honest people will live a full, happy life. Boy, how much simpler could that be? Proverbs 28, uh, excuse me, uh, 25, 13 says, Reliable friends who do what they say, they're like cool drinks in sweltering heat. Refreshing. It, isn't that the truth? Don't you love having somebody in your life that you know that when they say it, they don't have to pinky swear, they don't have to invoke any curse or whatever. You know. If they say it, you can take it to the bank. You know they'll do it. If they have to move heaven and earth, whatever it costs them, they will do it. Peterson's translation there, he just says, man, it's just like a cool drink on a hot day. It's so refreshing to be around somebody that you know that they're going to do what they said. David, in the 15th Psalm, as he is asking and answering the question of who gets to really be near God? Who gets to dwell on this holy mountain? Who gets to be in his presence? And then he gives a real, real short set of answers, just a few qualities that describe the man or woman who gets to live in the presence of God and really be near the Lord. He says in the 15th Psalm, one of the basic things about those people is they keep their promises to their neighbors even when it hurts. What's he saying in that? He's saying all the times that you want to make an excuse for yourself where you promised, you said you were going to do something, but then when it actually got down to paying the piper, when it got down to the doing of it, and you go, oh, wait a minute. Well, I didn't realize that what I promised was going to be this involved. I didn't realize it was going to take this long. I didn't realize it was going to be this costly. Well, I'm not going to do that. But I'm not lying because, see, I didn't, I didn't understand back when I said I was going to do that how costly it was going to be. So it's not a lie because I intended to when I said it. I just Now I'm more enlightened and I understand that I really didn't want to commit this much, so I'm not going to do it. David said, uh-uh, that doesn't cut it. You, this mental gymnastics of explaining away how we don't live up to what we said we were going to do. He said, a man or woman of integrity, they do what they promised even when it hurts. When the job costs you more than you thought it was going to cost you, and you still pay for it. When it's going to take you more time to fulfill what you committed to your friend or your spouse, you still take the time and do it. You don't give yourself an out. Those kinds of things build a reputation of trust and integrity. So, first of all, shifting, shifting the focus from yourself to others. Secondly, becoming a, a person that others can trust. And then the third trait that we see in these men is learning how to work well with others. This is one of the most basic and important skills that you ever learn in life, and it starts at home. It started for every one of us at home when we were growing up. The skill of learning how to work well with others. Family is the primary place that we learn this or that we fail to learn it. Now, I look around the room and I see a lot of parents and a lot of grandparents. And I would just say, as you think about this point, I want you to think about it not only internally about how it affects you and what needs to develop in your life and mine, but also how we're passing this on to the next couple of generations because this is a big deal. 
And we ought to be really guarded against the thing that is the trap. It's a real natural trap, particularly in parenting today. It's sort of like a trend in parenting today as far as what we want to make sure we supply for our kids and do for our kids. I mean, y'all live in the same world that I do. You hear the same stuff that I do. And don't you just notice this tremendous trend toward, you know, life just revolving around the children in the household. Like the schedule and the expense of money and just it's like everything has to revolve around the kids and what they need and what they want to do and their activities and all of that stuff. And here's one of the things we just got to get is one of the most basic things that kids have got to learn how to do is to be able to interact with others and to have to compromise and cooperate to learn that the world does not revolve around them. Like, if you want to curse your kids or your grandkids, give them everything that they ask for and make sure that they're never denied any experience that they want. You always let them make the call about where you're going to go out to eat and what you're going to do and what you're going to do on vacation. And just, you let them make the call on everything and I'll guarantee you they will be miserable as adults. They'll be lousy wives. They'll be terrible husbands. They won't be good parents and they will be awful employees. Because they lived in a world for 18 years that revolved around them. And I'll guarantee you, if they grow up in that, when they are adults, they fully expect the world to continue to, to function like that. Do any of you have a job that works that way for you? It just doesn't work that way in the real world, does it? Good luck finding a spouse that's going to operate that way with you. If you do... Sign them up for Celebrate Recovery because they are codependent and they need to get set free from living like that. Where they operate as if you are the sun and they are the solar system. That's not healthy, by the way. That's not being a good spouse. That's being unhealthy. So it's a real basic life skill to teach our kids how to interact with people who are not like them. How do we do this? Two basic things that we've got to do and teach to our kids and grandkids. First of all, learn to cooperate. And you started that for yourself or with your kids at a really, really early age. Learning to share your toys. Learning to clean up together. Learning to have to work together. Learning to share in responsibilities around the house where there's give and take and there has to be cooperation with others who are not like them. This is one of the biggest determining factors in a child being able to grow up to be a good spouse, a good employee, a good boss, a good friend. Do they know how to cooperate with other people who are not like them? Epaphroditus, he was a model of what we're talking about here. Paul says of him in verse 25, I thought it necessary to send you our brother Epaphroditus, who has worked and fought by my side and who has served as your messenger in helping me. All of the different terms that he's using for him here. That he's a brother, that he's worked and fought by my side, that he's a helper, you know, that he's just been the one right there connected to me, helping me. This guy is a picture of cooperation and working with others. He's the guy that when the church needed to get this money and assistance delivered hundreds of miles away, that he's like, you know, that, that is not a superstar role. That's the delivery boy. I'm willing to devote months of my life to doing this. Paul, whatever you need, I'll just be your helper. I'll be your, your handyman. I'll go wherever you need me to go. That's a guy who modeled this whole spirit of cooperation. And the terminology that Paul uses here is insightful. First of all, he calls him a brother which is a reminder of something that I, I wonder if we lose a bit of over time, and that is, you know, in the church, that we are the family of faith. Um, I don't know how it was in the church that you grew up in, but I grew up in a tradition where, this almost sounds a little bit weird for us today, but, you know, it was brother this and sister that. Like my pastor, it was as if his first name was brother. I mean, to this day, the pastor that I grew up with, I can't think of him without thinking of him as Brother Ray. He, he was just, you know, that was what you called him. He was Brother Ray. We, we don't really do it. Half the people after the first service on the way out the door were calling me Brother Mark. Okay, you do not have to call me Brother Mark. That is not what I'm saying at all. I answer to Mark really well. But just that reminder that, that we are the family of faith. And the reason that's such an important analogy for us is in your earthly family, the people who are blood related to you, are those relationships conflict free for you? You just, you just always get along great and never never get crossways with them. I've never stumbled across a family that functions like that. Every family I've ever known gets frustrated, aggravated, gets ticked off. Some, some of them just shout and yell at each other sometimes. But most of the families that I know, 
they don't quit being family because of that. It's just kind of a normal family thing. We're different from each other, but we're related. And so you're always going to be my brother. You're always going to be my mom. You're always going to be my dad. And so you just work through it and you keep on being brothers and sisters and sons and daughters and all that good stuff. Well, the scripture tells us that we are the family of faith. And so the same is true of us. We're so different from each other. We're not going to see eye to eye. We're going to get aggravated and crossways with each other. But that the cool thing is, because we're a family, it doesn't cause us to break fellowship. We get frustrated. Sometimes we have to really work through some hard stuff and get feelings hurt. But we get past that, and we just don't ever quit with each other because we're committed to cooperating and working together. And so we get beyond all those things. And yet, we see a really different model today, don't we? I mean, in this day and time... The church is this loosely, loosely affiliated group of people who worship together on Sunday morning and then meet together in much smaller groups during the week. And we will continue to meet together. I'm saying in the average church, we'll continue in this loose association together until we either get our feelings hurt or the preacher says something we don't like or, you know, Worst of all, that the worship leader starts using songs that are too fast or too slow or too loud or too something. We'll certainly break fellowship over that and find a better church. Or until we come across a church that offers better programs and services for us, or particularly for our, for our kids, because the world is supposed to resolve or revolve around our kids, and then we'll go there. I mean, does that not sound more like the church today than anything we read in the Scriptures? And maybe you don't think a lot about this. I'll tell you, as a pastor, you do. Because we encounter this all the time. It's amazing how fluid this is. People jump from church to church based on convenience or hurt feelings or the music or whatever. Instead of saying, "Mm -mm, this is my family. These are my brothers and sisters. And we are going to learn to work together. It's interesting that he uses the terms of, you know, that Epaphroditus, he has fought and labored by my side. When I read that this week, the thing that came to mind was, <laughs> I don't want you to be paranoid when I say this, but look, I'm no different than any of you. There are people I enjoy being with, and there are people who drive me batty. And that is true in the world, and that's true in the church. I love everybody in the church, but there are some people that are easier to be around than others. And you aren't any different than I am. And especially when, when a church gets really large, like Coates had grown really large, and you know, you get some fun people and you get some pretty wacky people who are in the church. And so every time that we would do a mission trip, man, this would be the gut check for me, especially like the, the African mission trips, because those would be 16 days and we would be together 24-7 on those trips. We're so dependent on each other on those trips in such difficult circumstances. And I'm just telling you the truth. Every year, you know, as we would assemble the roster of who's going, I would be just like holding my breath to see who's going on the trip when we would first assemble the roster. Because, you know, I'd be going down the list and it's like, oh, great. They'll do a great job. Super. Oh, oh. I mean, there'd be times I'd be like, oh, Jesus, are you sure this person? Did you call this person or did they just come to the meeting? I mean, that's a stretch right there, Lord. I mean, there, there have been times when I'm like, Maybe I could be the Holy Spirit and encourage this person to go on a shorter trip, on a different trip or something. Because the truth of the matter is a part of that is just like, I don't think I want to spend 16 days with that person. And can I tell you invariably what has happened with the people who have gone on these trips? The ones that when I looked at the list and went, oh man, that is not somebody I'm wanting to spend a ton of quality time with. When we would get in the field, particularly on these African trips where it is so intense. Where you talk about stepping into the front lines of a war zone where Muslims are openly opposing you, where witch doctors are openly you know, calling down curses on you, and where the demonic is coming out and day after day after day openly manifesting itself and doing everything in their power to stop what you're doing, where the intensity of ministry gets so deep, so fast. I want to tell you, all the concern about our differences, and I'm not sure I would enjoy being with you, evaporates. And by the time you've served together in that kind of environment where it's so intense and you're operating on so little sleep and stretched so thin, you are so glad for every one of your brothers and sisters who are just on your team. Every time I would walk away going, man, I am so glad they were on this trip. I will never look at them the same because they have proven themselves. They have, they have been there like a soldier, like a worker, just 
right alongside, and I will never see them as anything less than a brother or a sister. Now, that's the plus side. On the other side of that same coin, when you're not serving, when you're not in the deep waters of serving Jesus and giving your life away and being at a place where you desperately need some people to be on your team, if you're just sort of comfortably committed, just kind of coming and doing what's convenient, your level of commitment is, I'll serve on a committee where we'll talk about things and we'll make some decisions in an air-conditioned room about what other people ought to be doing. If that's the level of a person's commitment, the flip side of this coin is, Instead of learning to work well together and love like brothers and sisters, we will nitpick and we will find everything that we don't like to talk about. It's part of what's wrong with churches that spend more time in business meetings than actually getting out and doing mission work. Is We have time to sit around and complain about everything that we don't like instead of just wearing ourselves out trying to make a difference. Learning to cooperate happens primarily as you serve on a ministry team or as you get into a small group and plug in with a group that is growing and learning and serving together. The message translation of Matthew 5, 9 says this, You're blessed when you can show people how to cooperate instead of compete or fight. Then the second half of this, this whole thing of learning to work well with others is just learning to be considerate. The more considerate that you are of others, the happier you're going to be whether that's dealing with a clerk or a waiter or a waitress or dealing with people in your own family or in your church. Demanding people, inconsiderate people, they're some of the most unhappy people that you'll find. Paul said in verse 26 of Epaphroditus, he wants very much to see all of you and he is worried because you heard that he was sick. When Epaphroditus made this huge journey, he got deathly ill along the way. He almost died. Word of his sickness and being on his deathbed had gotten all the way back home eventually to his family and his closest friends. And they were worried sick. And it's not like you can call or go on the internet. I mean, it would take weeks for anybody to make the journey to carry news back that Epaphroditus had survived this. And I mean, can't you just imagine if you went on a, on a mission trip or went to some remote part of the world and you, you got critically ill and you knew word got back here to your family and your closest friends that you were on the verge of dying and it wasn't clear if you were going to pull through or not, but it didn't look good. Imagine if you were stuck in that place and there was no way you could get word out for weeks and weeks to let your family and friends know that you were okay. That's where Epaphroditus was. Wouldn't that just eat your lunch? Wouldn't that just drive you crazy to know the stress and anxiety that your loved ones are, are going through as they don't know if you're alive or dead or if you're still just at death's doorstep? And he is just... He's so concerned for them. He's so burdened for them. Why? Because he has a heart that's considerate. He's, he's concerned what they're feeling, and that's what a considerate person does. Paul in 1 Corinthians 1.10 gives us a passage that it, all the married people in the room, you need to circle this verse, draw big arrows to it. This ought to be like the first verse you ever commit to memory when you get married. All the folks who ever want to be married, circle this verse. He says, you must get along with each other. You must learn to be considerate of one another, cultivating a life in common. Every great husband, every great wife, this is the heart of the matter. They've learned to be considerate. Married folks, is that truth? Every great spouse, every great friend is great because they've learned to be considerate. Instead of reacting... And acting out of just what I'm feeling, saying whatever I think, a great husband, a great wife, pauses to consider, what are you feeling? What are you having to deal with right now? What are you going through? I wonder, even when like you're at your worst with me, when you're saying stuff that I don't want to hear or that's hurtful to me, instead of just lashing back out to pause and be considered, what's going on in your life? What's going on with you at work? What's going on with you physically? What's happening in your world? And Paul said, you must be, this is, it's a command, you must be considerate of each other. And he says, you've got to cultivate a life in common. The terminology there is a farming term for breaking ground. And it's such a perfect word picture because when you think about what, it, what life is like when you're single, which has been a weird experience for me to, to live alone essentially for the last three years because I've just spent all the rest of my adult life not in that situation. And so I've been shocked 
at how different life alone is. That suddenly all these things that I had to be considered about others before, now that my kids are grown and gone and I'm not married, it's like so much of the stuff of life, you're not having to be considerate of others. You go to bed when you want to. You get up what you want, when you want to. You eat what you want to. You eat when you want to. You watch what you want to. I mean, you just... Suddenly, you don't have to be considerate of others. And here... I mean, I've thought of this many times. The scary part about that is when you've lived alone for a while, especially when you're not real young anymore, is you quickly get settled in a routine and it's like the ground is getting packed down in your life. It's like everything's getting sort of settled into what I like and what I want to do. And for anybody else to come into that environment, I mean, it's really weird because like even when my adult children now come to visit and stay with me, it's amazing how that's like having to plow hard ground again because it's like, shoot, suddenly I have to care what somebody else wants to do and what they want to eat and what, what, you know, just have to take somebody else into consideration. And when a single person gets married, oh, that's so unsettling, isn't it? Because now you have to consider somebody else about everything. What they feel and what they want and what they need matters all the time. And Paul said, it's like, it's like running a plow through ground that hadn't been broken up in a long, long time. You've got to keep breaking ground. You've got to keep busting up those little hard dirt pots. That's Any of you ever plowed before? Woo! Man, we grew up having to garden and work the ground and that's hard work to break ground paul said relationships are that way learning to be considerate always doing the hard work of cultivating life together paul said of himself in first corinthians 10:33, i don't just do what's best for me i do what is best for others so that many may be saved it's hard work but it's worth it and then the fourth and final thing that we see modeled in the lives of these men is you've got to live for something that's worth dying for if you want to find real lasting joy and happiness. Everybody is searching for meaning in life at some level. We're not happy without it. And you won't find real meaning in life until you find a way to give your life for something that will outlast you. I mean, that's the best way to spend your life is investing in, in something that's going to outlast you. Tragically, we all get to watch people who make first-rate commitments to second-rate causes. Don't you know that's a fact? I mean, how many people have you known have done that? I mean, they give themselves so wholeheartedly. They are the best at, and you fill in the blank, they are giving a, a first-rate commitment to what winds up being a second-rate cause. You're like, well, I'm glad you're committed to something, but I just don't know that what you're giving your life to is going to matter in very many years. It's like, you know, the old thing of somebody who's willing to just work so hard to climb the ladder only to learn years into that climb, they lean their ladder against the wrong wall. You and I know a lot of people climbing a ladder that's leaned against the wrong wall. I mean, sometimes the thing that we're climbing the ladder, it'll be, you know, success in life and being financially stable and having all this stuff and getting an early retirement. And you chase that all that you want to only to arrive at a point that you realize, wow, I got that, but I really missed out on all the stuff that mattered in life. Or you, know, you can chase it with a career. You can place your ladder against something that sounds noble but still isn't worthy of giving your whole life to. I've known people that the wall that they placed their ladder against, that, was, that they gave a first-rate commitment to, is that they are going to be the greatest mom or the greatest dad that anybody has ever been. And they sell everything else. They sell their soul to being the greatest parent. Usually that is rooted in the fact that they had a parent that didn't give them what they needed, and so now they are going to be the opposite of that. And they will sell everything else out to be a super parent. And they will wind up with a lousy marriage. They'll wind up with a lousy uh, set of friendships or no friendships. And they'll, they'll wind up really not willing to serve the Lord through the church because they're so committed to just this one thing of parenting. And even though it was a noble thing, when it's all said and done, it wasn't worthy of sacrificing their everything for that. So giving your life for something that really is worth dying for is key in this. So you need to ask yourself the question, am I giving my time, energy, money, worry, thoughts, and effort? First of all, what are you giving that to? What takes most of your time and energy and thought and resources? 
And will that matter in five years? In ten years? In thirty years? In a thousand years? Paul said in verses 27 and 30 of Epaphroditus, he said, he certainly was ill. In fact, he almost died for he risked his life for the work of Christ. He was at the point of death while doing for me what you couldn't do from far away. And, and let me just remind you of, of what had actually taken place. Epaphroditus lived in Philippi. In, that's in Greece. Where's Paul? He's in Rome. They are not close to each other. They are an 800-mile hike apart. The church realized, I mean, Paul is their spiritual father. They heard word of how Paul's been in prison for four years, and he, he needs food, and he needs money to, you know, for his needs to be taken care of. He needs somebody there to help him. And so the church says, all right, we need to take up a collection of money. So they do that. They take up a, a significant collection, and they're like, now, we need somebody who can carry this. By the way, there is no paper money in that time. It's, it's a heavy bag of money that needs to be carried and delivered. Somebody's going to have to carry this 800 miles on foot to get to Paul. Okay, let me quickly put that in perspective. This would be the equivalent of me saying today, we need somebody to take a heavy sack of quarters and we need you to walk from here to Aten and then across the bay through Mobile and across Mobile County to the Mississippi line. But we don't need you to stop there. I'm going to need you to hike the entire width of the state of Mississippi and then across the Mississippi River. I need you to walk the entire width of the state of Louisiana. I need you to begin to turn northwest and I want you to hike all the way across East Texas to Dallas. And then I want you to turn north. And I want you to hike until you are out of Texas, cross the Oklahoma line, go all the way to the center of Oklahoma, go through Oklahoma City, and when you get just beyond Oklahoma City, you'll find a guy in jail. And I want you to take this gift to him. Do I have any takers today? Nobody's going to be working your job for you. Nobody's going to be earning your, your income at home and all that good stuff for you. I just need for you to carry this sack to Oklahoma City on foot. And when you're done, there is no bus to bring you back. You're going to have to hike back. That's what Epaphroditus had signed up for. An 800-mile hike. And along the way, he's going to encounter all kinds of dangers. Because in, in Paul's day, it was just not safe to travel on foot. You needed an entourage to travel safely. And you sure didn't want to have to carry a big sack of money that's clink, clink, clink every step that you take. Because bandits just hung out up and down the, the major roadways there because it was so easy to just, you know, hide out of sight, wait for somebody to come along, three or four bandits jump on you, beat you to death, take your money, and they go on their merry way. He's not going with an armed escort. He's got this terrible journey before him, and then he's going to have to hike back. He's literally putting his life on the line. And along the way, there aren't going to be any hotel stops, you know, there's no Holiday Inn Express, there's not going to be any McDonald's or Hardee's, there's not going to be any Walmarts to hop in and, and get extra provisions for the trip. It's going to be a rough journey. He's putting his life on the line and he got sick along the way. He became deathly ill. But when he got over it, he didn't turn back, he didn't go home, he finished the job. Because Epaphroditus had figured out that even if it was going to cost him his life, he was going to give his life for something bigger than him. The church was exploding on the scene, and Paul was the figure that God was using more than anyone else to birth the church. And Epaphroditus could not imagine being linked to anything more significant. If he was going to die, he was going to die for something bigger than himself. And Paul said, I get it. All of you in Philippi couldn't load up and come to where I am. And so you took up a collection and you let Epaphroditus do for me what you all couldn't do for me. And it almost cost him his life. And that's okay. Because he had figured out something that mattered. Something that mattered beyond his days. He was willing to trade his life for something that would outlive him. 
And even when it got really hard, he finished what he committed to do. Now, here we are 2,000 years later, and I want to ask you two questions about that. First of all, what have you committed to that you haven't continued to follow through on or haven't finished? That you either committed to the Lord or to your spouse or to a friend or maybe you just committed it to yourself and right now you're not living out that commitment. Epaphroditus was a man who finished what he started. What have you started or committed to that you haven't finished? This is kind of the upside and downside of being the preacher. This stuff that I'm preaching to you on Sunday that may sound like, oh, well, great, you've apparently dealt with all this. As I'm preparing this, the Holy Spirit sometimes just wears me out. With, you know, I'll have people say, boy, you stepped all over my toes today. And I'm thinking, yeah, you ought to be in, in my place where you know, my heart has had to be dealt with before I ever got to share this with you. On this issue, as I'm, I'm wrestling with this whole thing, what have you committed to and not done? And it's like the Holy Spirit, yeah, went, yeah big boy, let's talk about you now. Let's talk about what you have committed to that you haven't followed through on. I mean, he's just so real about this. And I'm like, what have I not followed through on? And he put his finger just dead on to a commitment. I have never shared it with another living human being. It was just between me and God. And I didn't even promise it to God. It was just a commitment that I made in my own heart in terms of support that I would supply where it was needed and do it on a regular basis. And I had not followed through on that. It was something I'm not obligated to do. It was just something that in my heart I had committed to do. And the Lord said, you remember making that commitment and you have not done it. It's one of those where I just had to go, wow, you were so right. And then it's just like, what are you going to do about it? I couldn't preach to you today until I went back and made that right and committed, Lord, from here on, I am doing what I, what I set out in my heart to do. What have you committed to do that you're not following through on? And the second thing is this. If you're a follower of Jesus, what are you doing in your walk with the Lord that's costing you anything or that's risking anything? whether it's your physical safety, your financial security, your plans for the future, whatever it is, do you have a commitment to Christ that is willing to take risks? Because I'll guarantee you this. Jesus didn't call you to live a life that's just going to keep you always at a safe place. I guarantee you He didn't call you to Freedom Church just so you can sit in a padded chair and listen to teaching and sing songs. He calls you here because... He plans to do powerful, risky, world-changing things with you. Do you have a commitment to Christ that's willing to take risks and lay it on the line to exchange your safety and security for something that matters for eternity? And you may be saying, well, I, I don't really know what that would look like. I don't know what that is. I don't know what it is for you either, but I know the most dangerous prayer you could pray today. It's a real simple one. Jesus, please use me. That's it. Four words. Riskiest prayer you could pray today. Jesus, please use me. What would he do with that? I have no idea, but I know this. He'll show you. He will call you into places and opportunities and things that you didn't ever dream that you would do. He'll stretch you. You'll have to risk some things in that. I'll close with a passage that I've shared with you. I shared with you last week, but it's Matthew eight, uh, excuse me, Mark eight thirty five, where Jesus said this: Only those who give away their lives for my sake and for the sake of the good news will ever know what it means to truly live. Do you really want to know what it means to truly live? You've got to be willing to give yourself away to something that matters more than you. Would you join me as we go to the Lord together in prayer? Lord Jesus, I thank you that you honor us by inviting us to be involved with you in what you're doing in the world. You give us this incredible privilege that we get to be a part of the most significant things happening on this planet. Would you forgive us for all the ways that we get so self-absorbed and wrapped up in our own stuff? Would you help us to be a people who take the focus off of ourselves? Would you forgive us for the times when we 
don't reflect your character, when we don't live worthy of trust. Lord, would you help us to be a people who, who are committed to each other and who work through our differences and learn to work well together. And above all that, would you help us to be a people who so care about you and care about people that we are willing to exchange our lives, our plans, our futures, the money we have in the bank for something that's going to outlive us. Lord, together we pray that simple prayer. Would you please use us? I invite you right now, would you just, if you want to move beyond where you are, if you want to be in the middle of what God's saying and doing, would you just pray that simple prayer? Lord, would you use me? Would you show me the next step to take? Would you open my eyes to what you have for me? And would you help me to walk in faith into that? I want to know what it means to truly live. Holy Spirit, we invite you to have your way in our lives. Continue to reshape our hearts around Christ and His work in the world. We offer ourselves to you today in a fresh way and give you thanks. In Jesus' name, Amen.